Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. First up today, though, a very familiar topic for anyone who has lived in this city for any period of time. Anyone who's listened to this show or watched TV or read the paper or read online stuff, it is the topic that just will not go away. It will never end, apparently. I've joked about this before, but on all of our epitaphs will be written, I survived, my life was spent talking about the LRT and it's still going on. Well, now we learn that the LRT project is facing another delay because work is supposed to get started after Main Street is converted into two ways. That's not now going to start until 2026 and probably be done until 2028. So it goes on. John Paul Danko is counselor for Ward 8, joins us now on the show. Thanks for doing this, counselor. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Are we ever going to be able to talk about something else other than the construction of LRT? Is this ever going to get done? Well, we can always talk about taxes. Well, uh, taxes and LRT are Hamilton's two favorite topics. Well, they are, and and for two different reasons. Uh, The the LRT one, obviously, and I'm sort of half-joking, but not really. This thing is just the story that drags and drags, and every time it seems there's a step forward, we get another bit of news that there's something else that's slowing it down or something that's holding it up. I mean, it really, uh, for, for us listening, it is wildly frustrating. I have no doubt that for people on council, it's wildly frustrating. Yeah, and I think we're all you know, very much looking forward to getting shovels in the ground and, and getting some actual physical progress on LRT because it, it is a major transformational project for a city, you know, however which way you look at it. And I think from council's perspective is now that we've we've settled the decision of will we or won't we, now we're working through the how are we going to. And I think it's really important, you know, for the whole city that we, we get it right and that we work with Metrolinx in the province and that, uh, you know, we're not going to rush things, that, that, it, that it is the best project that it can be for the city. The fact that, were you, did, did council know about this ahead of time or was this a bit of a surprise when you heard that we have another delay towards getting started on this? So I, I don't think it's necessarily related, this, the schedule for Main Street two-way and LRT uh, construction, because LRT was decided it was going to proceed um, before the decision on, on Main Street two-way. So LRT is, is its own project. However, the, the two-way conversion of Main Street is related because the intention was that some of that construction impact of traffic flow could be accommodated on Main Street if it had two-way flow. So it is, it is related in that way. Um, I, I was a bit surprised at the timing that, that staff were proposing for the Main Street conversion because, again, the intention was to at least have it underway along with the phasing for LRT. But both are very complex, significant projects that follow you know, a fairly large geographical area. And again, we want to make sure that we're, we get both of those right. Well, and, and it was just a week or two ago, I guess a couple of weeks ago now that we had another change that caught a lot of people by surprise. Again, maybe not you, but a lot of people by surprise when they said, hey, let's, we're going to change the, the path of the LRT and go down Dundurn and get rid of a bridge that would have cut through the park outside Cathedral, Christ the uh, King Cathedral. Um, it, like, it, it just, it seems as though, again... When there is something, when it looks as though things have finally settled down and the ripples have, you know, calmed on the water, someone throws a boulder back in and there's always seemingly something to try and deal with. Yeah, and I think any construction project of this magnitude, there's going to be some value engineering and design revisions. We're looking at design revisions for the, you know, the the right of way cross sections as well for how they're going to accommodate traffic flow on King Street versus the actual train uh, right of way. Uh, and I think the the component that you talked about, like the realignment at uh, at Dundurn, actually really helps with the two-way conversion of Main Street because it brings the conversation about that really awkward off-ramp from the 403. It puts that back onto Metrolinx in the province, and they, they, they have said, okay, we're going to take responsibility for this. And it... it, it 
I think it shows the complexity of both of the projects and how they're tied together and decisions on one impact the decisions on the other. Councillor, I think one of the other things, and, and I don't know, frankly, I don't expect you to have an answer to this, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. I mean, uh, the, the one of the most common things that I hear when I talk to people out in the community now is there is no chance in the world that this thing is going to cost $3.4 billion, which was the last number because of inflation and just everything going up in price. There is no way this thing can be built for the amount that it was scheduled to be built for a few years ago, do you have any concerns that I know the province has said that it will pay the price, but do you have any concerns that at some point the province says it's just too expensive and we're not going to do that? So I have full confidence that the province is still committed to Hamilton's LRT project. Uh, they have an entire staff at Metrolinx that's dedicated to this project and, and work is ongoing, you know, daily, uh, you know, on moving this forward. However, I, I do share that concern about the overall project budget. Um, construction uh, costs have gone up by about 30% just in the last three years. And if you interpolate that to a project that is the scope, size and scope of LRT, I mean, obviously that is a very significant amount of money. And I, I think that's probably some of the work that's going on behind the scenes is, is that value engineering. And, uh, you know, as you get towards procurement, your construction cost estimates get uh, tighter and tighter as you sharpen your pencil. So, you know, I, I think definitely that is conversations that are having at both the provincial level and also with city staff. Um, but like I said, I'm still 100% confident that the province is, is committed to this project and uh, they will be uh, delivering for the residents of Hamilton. Let, let's go back to the, uh, the the story as it was, because this one connects to the Main Street uh switch over to two-way. And I mean, you mentioned uh, a few moments ago about, you know, the, the, I can't remember the word now, the use of it, but do you worry ultimately that what this is going to do when we make Main Street two ways and then King Street um, coming into the downtown where the overhang is there, that that's not even going to have traffic going through because of the LRT line. Do you worry that traffic downtown, in the, just not even downtown, traffic in the lower city when this thing is done, is going to become completely impassable? So I think the entire point, or one of the entire points of a transit program or project on the scope of LRT is obviously to remove cars from the road, to give people an option for a different way of transportation. And and we're also doing a lot of work at the city level, realigning all of the HSR bus routes, for example, citywide, uh, to take advantage and to leverage uh, this investment by the province. So I, I expect that in the future, and, and we have to shift significantly to transit in order to accommodate the growth that's coming to Hamilton, not just in the downtown core, but in every area of the city. I think, um, you know, with every change of this nature, obviously there's going to be, or there's going to have to be some realignment, rethinking about how traffic flows. And we are very concerned. We, we want to make sure that people can get to where they need to go in Hamilton, no matter how they plan to get there, whether that's in a car or on uh, transit or cycling or walking. Um, but I think we're starting to think about transit or sorry, transportation as, um, you know, a, a, a total network, not just a road, not just the bus, not just bike lanes, but as, as a network of options. And that's, that's how cities you know, around the world are able to accommodate significant growth in the future. And, and that's how we're going to have to grow as a city. And, and I, look, I understand that part in the vision zero and, and the, the things that are involved in trying to make the street safer. I really do. I was shocked, uh, several months ago when Mike Field, who's the head of, uh, transportation for the city, gave me some numbers that said that the, the, the stretch of main street around Dundurn there, and as you go probably up to maybe Bay or whatever, more cars go along that stretch every day than are on the link heading the same direction. And mm -hmm. when the LRT is now going to be coming down Dundurn and then turning right onto Main Street there, that's going to take up a couple lanes and bike lanes. Like it coming off the highway, it sounds like that area is going to be the worst place in the city to drive a car. Like there's going to be, people are not going to want to come downtown if they don't live in the downtown, if they have to navigate that area of the city. It sounds like as a, for a driver, it's going to be horrible. 
I think there's definitely challenges in the existing road network. Um, you know, and we're limited by the right of ways that we have and what we can fit on a, a you know, a, a limited amount of real estate uh, within the road right of ways. Um, I, I think there's a lot of technological solutions now that didn't exist in the past. So, you know, every time you get in your car, you plug in where you're going into uh, into your, your nav and it, it, you know, shows you the, the fastest route. Um so, you know, again, we, we still want to make sure that people can get to where they need to go, you know, especially if they're in a vehicle, if that's their, you know, the easiest way to get there. Um, but I, I think it's about options. And also there's, there's so much going on in our city, like the slate lands with 24,000 new jobs in Burlington Street. And, um, you know, there's, there's our, our transportation network is evolving and, and it will continue to evolve. Mm. Uh, one last thing, and uh, that is that there have been, there are other uh, LRT lines um, in cities around this province. Toronto, there's been a, well documented the number of problems just getting theirs built. Uh, Ottawa has had all kinds of problems. What, how, what gives you the confidence that Hamilton's will not face the same problems, either in construction or operation that some other cities have? I think those are really legitimate concerns as well. You know, the cost overruns and, and the, the scheduling overruns that we've seen in, in the Crosstown in Toronto, um, the kind of never-ending problems that the Ottawa LRT uh, has had. But I think there's also some really great success stories like Kitchener-Waterloo. And we actually have um, one of the people that was involved in the KW LRT coming to the LRT subcommittee on Tuesday to give council an update on some of the best practices for uh, a line that has been a huge success story for uh, for Kitchener Waterloo, and we want to learn from the mistakes that have happened elsewhere, but also learn from the successes of others. Mm. Uh, that is Councillor John Paul Danko. Listen, we uh, there were a number of councillors that uh, that weren't or couldn't come on today, and uh, we always appreciate you coming on and talking about these things. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Uh, as I said, we, we did, um, in case you're wondering, like, wait, John Paul Danko's ward is not on the LRT line. That's correct. Uh, we asked other, some other counselors who were more connected, they couldn't make it today. So we, uh, we do appreciate, uh, that he would come on and talk about these things because it is regardless of how absolutely fatigued we are with this topic. And I completely understand that. I completely understand that. It is a topic that we can't then just say, well, just wake me up when it's done. It's, it's too important to the city and we need to be on top of these things. It's too important to the city to just push aside and say, we're never going to talk about it because we're fed up with it. We're all fed up with it. We would, I, I would be willing to bet that everybody in the city either wishes that it was done now or wishes that it will never be done. But I don't think anybody is sitting there going, you know, I'm finding this whole drawn out protracted process invigorating and exciting. Nobody, nobody's there. You either want it to be done and operative, which it, we should have been very close by now if things had gone on schedule from the beginning, maybe not quite there yet, but we would have been close. Or as I say, you absolutely want nothing to do with it and wish that it would go away. And either one, I mean, I know there are people out there with strong opinions on both, but the idea that, well, you know, it's just another delay and what did you expect? Well, that's, that's fair enough. That's part of the question though. And, and I do think while I was being somewhat cheeky at the beginning with the first question saying, is this thing ever going to be built? I know, I know that there are many of you out there listening right now who have asked that very question in a more serious tone going, is this thing ever going to get built or are we just going to be talking about this until the dawn of forever? And again, I think depending on which side of this you're on, you are either going to say, yes, of course it's going to be built or, huh, maybe we can dodge this one. Depending on where, depending on which side you're on, you will hold one of those two points of view. I am quite sure. Uh, we got to take a break. Uh, by the way, uh, note here from Ken, I drive a truck and do deliveries in Hamilton on a daily basis. I am not looking forward to the construction and I'm not looking forward to the aftermath. A few years ago when the city had that bus only lane going through downtown Hamilton, traffic was a nightmare all day, every day. 
The city has a horrible transportation infrastructure. We will see if it gets much worse. We will see maybe LRT somehow speeds it up or eases it. Maybe everybody takes LRT and there are far fewer cars on the road and it makes the, uh, the questions remain. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Cristiano Ronaldo, you're probably familiar with the name. Uh, He is the all-time leading international goal scorer among men. International competition, 128 goals he has scored. Uh, Lionel Messi is in third. He's got 106. I was kind of shocked to find out Pele was only 13th with 77, but nonetheless. The point is not how Pele did or how Lionel Messi did or even how Cristiano Ronaldo did. Because with 190 goals, Christine Sinclair, Canada's Christine Sinclair, she, uh, in international competition, I understand that uh, the level of competition for a time in women's may have been not the same, isn't the same as what it has been in the men's. That doesn't matter. She has blown away all the other comparables. Nobody else, well, I mean, there's a a few other women who are close, but she is out in front. And tonight at 10 o'clock, if you tune into TSN, her final game, it's a friendly in BC Place, tonight named Christine Sinclair Place. Um, They'll be playing Australia, her last go as a member of Team Canada. What has her impact been in this country? on women, on boys, on men, on girls, whatever. What has her impact been? Alison Sandmeyer Graves is the CEO of Canadian Women in Sports, joins us now. Uh, how are you tonight? Thanks for doing this. I'm great, thanks. Sitting here at the Vancouver Airport, so you may hear a flight announcement behind That is okay. <laughs> Hopefully you're, moving, you're going in to see the game, not leaving I'm- tonight. I have arrived. I have arrived with throngs of others to be part of the big moment tonight. What? Okay. So what do you say is her, I mean, I I don't even want to say legacy because her legacy is pretty clear. She's the best international, best, maybe the best female soccer player of all time. But the, the impact beyond that, her meaning in Canada, what, what is her meaning in Canada? Oh, gosh. You know, there's different ways to look at that. Um, certainly she has taken soccer in Canada to heights, I think, beyond anybody's expectations. I mean, gold at the last Olympics uh, in a country that doesn't have professional women's league, that doesn't have a strong pathway. Uh, I mean, I think it just exceeded everybody's expectations. And really, you know, domestically, she is a household name. That is a hard bar to hit, Uh, especially in women's sport, which gets so little coverage. Uh, But she has been at this game, at the top of the game for so long, more than two decades, leading the way for Canada, leading the way in whatever space she shows up, you know, in Portland Thorns, down south of us where she plays professionally. And uh, she deserves all the accolades and all the recognition. What's really exciting is to think about where she's leaning into as she goes into her next chapter, where she is moving from being a leader on the pitch to really using her voice off the pitch to push for change, to push for more for women and girls in soccer in this country. And it's going to be really exciting to see where that goes. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the, uh, you know, women's soccer with no domestic league. Now there is one that is scheduled to get going in 2025. We hope that that happens uh, because it would be an important thing for female soccer players uh, for sure. But it got me wondering today when I was thinking about that, that there wasn't a domestic league. Have we been too slow has has her time as the greatest international, the greatest Canadian soccer player, has that time been allowed to slip by and now we look back and go, man, how did we not take advantage of that better in some ways? And I say that take advantage in the most positive way. Did we let it slip by and not take advantage of it when we could have or should have done more with her? Well, it would have been amazing to see Sinclair suit up week in and week out on a team here in one of our cities so that we could all be fans all the time. You know, we have the Canadian women's national team. It's actually really rare and exceptional to have a game here on home soil. We've had a few this fall, which has been awesome for the fans of the game and for those who want to be fans. Um, But the opportunity to see these top players and not just Sinclair, but the others on this team, uh, have those opportunities to be fans of them would be amazing. And frankly, Canada's behind. Diana Matheson, who's leading Project 8 to bring that domestic league here to Canada, talks about the last World Cup. And there were only two teams without a professional league domestically. 
Haiti and Canada yeah. <laughs> at yeah. that World Cup. So we are just way off on our own out here, and it's more than time. Uh, it, so let's get that going for the next generation yeah, so that we can support them here at home. Because, Allison, it just it seems, and I know this is a ridiculous thing to say, but like the idea that Wayne Gretzky would have played his entire career, and then when he was done, we say, you know what we should really do is start a league where he could play at home because then we could have seen him more. Like It, it sounds ludicrous. <laughs> it does. And, you know, I think there's been such slow, I'd like to say steady progress on uh, advancing women's sport in this country and really seeing the value in it and having the respect for it, really seeing it as a viable business opportunity. And we're certainly doing some work to support that case in this space. Uh, But, you know, it's, it's been slow to take root. And there's a lot of gender bias, a lot of sexism in that space to overcome. Uh, But talent like like Christine and her teammates, they're undeniable. And uh, they're a great product, if you will. (laughs) So I think it's time that we really get behind them and we create those opportunities here at home, which serves them as players, but also serves everyone coming up behind them. You know, we had um, back a few years ago when Canada was hosting the World Cup, there was a pre-tournament game here in Hamilton and she played here. Melissa Tancredi, who of course is from Hamilton, was playing in that game, sold out Tim Hortons Field. They played England. It was a great night. And yet at the same time, there's an awful lot of times in women's sports when they're not sold out. And even when it's not always all, you wonder why more women aren't going out to watch. Like when you talk about the sexism, I I don't disagree with what you're saying, but it's, it seems as though even sometimes, and you tell me if you think, if you disagree, but it seems even sometimes women have a hard time or are low, they're slow to jump on board and support this. And I don't quite understand why. Well, certainly we are immersed in a culture that really communicates day in and day out that men's sport is valuable, that it's respected, that it's worthy of attention, that, you know, we should all be part of it. You know, it's part of our culture, you know, which NHL team or which CFL team or what have you are you a fan of? And those teams and those sports have had decades of investment, of media coverage, of opportunities for fans to become fans. And so when we talk about women's sport, we need the same opportunity for it to grow and develop. I think we can leapfrog many of those decades Mm. (laughs) and just accelerate through some of that. But it's hard to be a fan of something you literally cannot see or watch on the regular. And so a big part of what we need to see more of is more visibility, more opportunities to turn on your TV or scroll through your feed, whatever your medium is. And to see those amazing stories, those highlights, and when's the next opportunity to watch. So uh, I hear you. We've got work to do. Um, but, you know, the research is showing that the fans is there, are there. The appetite is there. We're going to be producing some more of that research um, in the spring. And we just got to get out if we believe in it and we want it to be here. We do have to get out and support it. And I think, and we got to run, but I think a night like tonight, um, it, I, I wish, to be honest, I wish it was not at 10 o'clock BC, you know, 10 o'clock Eastern time. I wish it was earlier in the night so more people would watch because I think tonight's one of those perfect nights that would really, will really help. I mean, will, would, both. But I, I, I this is a night that is going to draw an awful lot of attention to her and to what she's done. For sure. And it's going to be a great game. I mean, playing against Australia, it's going to be a ton of fun. The atmosphere is going to be electric. And so it's everything you're looking for as a fan. And so it's too bad that it's her last game uh, in the red and white. Uh, but, you know, she let, she's led a great team with a lot of young players coming up. There's going to be lots to cheer for in the years ahead. Well, and you were absolutely right when you said that she's a household name. That I, I, I didn't know that it was going to happen that the team that played in the 2012 Olympics in London when they won the bronze medal and frankly should have done better than that if it wasn't for a referee who lost her mind momentarily. But um, that that team and the, would go on and all of those women would become, all of those women, I think, for a long time were household names. People knew who they were, probably still do. That 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 is an enormous accomplishment and she was a big part of that. And as I say, Melissa Tancredi from around here, Diana Matheson, who you mentioned, and you know, th- probably 20 years ago, we could have said these names and nobody would have known who they are. Now people recognize them. That, that's, that's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And when you think about three back-to-back Olympics yep. where they had where they medaled, 
I mean, that's a lot of years. <laughs> so, you know, Sinclair's career has is remarkable in many ways, but also because it's been more than two decades, you know, playing, but very quickly leading that team. So it's going to be wonderful to see the tribute from the fans, but also her fellow players and those who've come to join as alumni in this experience. It'll be pretty special, one yeah, for the books. Uh, for sure. I don't know if she would want to be known as the Gordie Howe of, uh, of women's soccer. Gordie Howe looked a whole lot older than she did when she's retiring. But um, yeah, two decades is a remarkable, remarkable thing. Uh, that is tonight, 10 o'clock. People can see it on TV. Allison Sandmeyer Graves, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a an organization, uh, PISA, P-I-S-A, the Program for International Student Assessment. And every three years, this year, apparently four years because of, you know, what we had in the last little while. Uh, but every three years, it looks at a student's assessments around the world, student per, um, achievement in um, in academics, in reading, in writing, in all kinds of different things. And it though the figures came out today and it seems every educational expert is now diving into these numbers and it kind of looks like the same thing across the board but before i get to what that same thing is let me bring in paul bennett he is the director of the schoolhouse institute and schoolhouse consulting he would be canada's leading educational expert the guy we would turn to on a day like this paul how are you very good i'm a little bit tired and a bit uh, weary of all of this discussion I would well, say storm of discussion about the PISA results. It it so okay. So this for, for people just to understand, because Paul, there are 12 trillion studies that come out every year that talk <laughs> about all kinds of different things in education. But my understanding, this is this is the one that matters. Yes, I would say it's the Super Bowl of educational research because it is the largest single study regarded as the uh, gold standard for assessment for 15-year-olds across the world in up to 79 different countries. And it's considered to be a yardstick against which you measure achievement. Uh, remember, it's 15-year-olds uh, in three particular subject areas, mathematics, reading, and science. So let's, before we get to how we did in Canada, let me just, I pulled up, PISA and results on Google in under news today. And here are the headlines from stories all over the world. U.S. students' math scores plunge. Australian students' PISA scores still declining. In France, OECD education survey shows unprecedented drop in student performance. Uh, Germany students fare worse than ever in PISA school tests. Uh, good and bad news for Australian global study. Romania registers no process. I could go on. Like literally, it seems, except for England, which for some reason seems to have improved, everybody seems to be pointing to marks declining. Is this entirely then to do with COVID? Not entirely, because 2018 to 2022 is what the current results show. But when you look closer at Canada, you see that from 2000 and 2003, the years that we joined and became part of PISA, our results have steadily declined. In fact, uh, take mathematics, which was the focus of this particular study. We started out with a uh, 532 rating on a scale of uh, was 500 was the base model. Uh, we're now down to 497. We've lost a tremendous amount of ground in uh, mathematics. And when you look across the board, the same is true in reading and to a little lesser extent in science. So uh, we have dropped from being, uh, you recall the phrase, Canada is a global education superpower. Well, we've we're, our, our status is severely compromised now because there are many countries that have uh, passed us. And we finished, for example, in mathematics, we finished ninth but we were once first or second in uh, in those categories. So there's been a steady decline over time. Uh, one of the things that is masked by this is we've got general results for all of Canada. These ag are aggregated for the 10 provinces and three territories. And so it kind of hides 
uh, some of the weaknesses. So let me just deal with mathematics. Sure. Without Quebec, we would be little better than average because Quebec is still competitive with the best places in the world in only one thing, and that is in mathematics. Without Alberta, in all three uh, categories, uh, leading the way. In uh, Alberta is uh, first in reading, first in science, as usual, and uh, second in mathematics. So Alberta clearly weathered the pandemic better than other provinces. Ontario, well, given the amount of resources poured into the Ontario school system, it's it's a rather pathetic result. So many things I want to get to from what you just said. First of all, going back to, um, I've pulled up the graph here that they've showed these math scores. You mentioned 532 back in 2003. And it is every every time a measure has been done, save for 2006 to 9 when it was exactly even, every other time it has dropped. So it's been a continual decline. This is not, and for the for clarification, this is not the same as EQAO, correct? Because again, we have all these different scoring things. This is a different measure from EQAO? It's completely different from EQAO. Um, and you can make cross comparisons, but you it's dangerous because keep in mind, this is 15-year-olds uh, in a global uh, assessment and you're measured against the best in the world. Uh, EQAO is more local. It's based on provincial curricula. It's not generalizable. And I don't think it's as reliable, to be honest, as some of these uh, standards. So this uh, is the one then, when you're measuring against everyone else, this is the one that really tells us where we stand. More I also, uh, I'm a big believer in pearls, which is uh, developed more by mathematicians. And we are declining in pearls too. But as far as the reason that um, the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development Education Skills Office, is dominant. And I think it's because it covers three domains of math, reading, and science, and it does so reasonably well. It's also the subject of much of the debate in the world. By the way, PISA uh, and OECD is the largest educational research institute in the world, because these reports, you see, they come out once every three years, but they spawn so many other detailed analyses. For example, if you're interested in how mathematics students students do in, in mathematics by gender, uh, if you're interested in, uh, like, I'll give you an example that I spotted today, and no one would have spotted this yet, but I did, because I was digging down. Uh, what do you think happened with during COVID with homework? Uh, there's a chart in there for Canada, which is interesting. Very few people, no one's commented on it. I'll throw it out there right now. Do you realize that the students who got the most homework during COVID did far better on the PISA test? And uh, those who had little or no homework assigned to them in their school uh, did incredibly poorly. But that's just uh, logic, isn't it, Paul? That's just no, that's no, what but I would you know expect. What? There's there's denialists around. Uh, there's people who said that it wasn't a good idea to give homework, that kids were suffering trauma, that it was it that the math anxieties were high, and that we should we should be uh, uh, cutting back and just concentrating on student well being and protecting them against the trauma. So uh, what's happened is those who argued strongly that we should suspend assessments. We should uh, give kids a, a chance to adjust and we shouldn't demand a whole lot of them. My goodness, those students have suffered. They've suffered more than anyone else. And you know, they're concentrated in uh, two or three areas, those with special needs, those that are marginalized or those that come from challenging socioeconomic circumstances. So they've been hurt far more as a result of us suspending a lot of the expectations during the COVID pandemic. You mentioned, and I want to get to that in a second, but I want to sort of follow this through in some sort of logical way here, but you mentioned the resources because that's obviously a big thing. There are commercials on the radio now talking about, you know, to the Ontario government, you need to spend more on education. And yet in 2006, we were spending $20 billion a year in education in Ontario. Now, I know inflation is a thing and I'm not going to deny that, but we were spending $20 billion a year in 2006 when 
our marks were way higher. We're now spending $34.7 billion and our marks are way lower. Is this telling us what what is t- this telling us is it saying money doesn't equal results is it saying we're doing something wrong that we're putting the money in the wrong place or is this simply a a, a situation that is not got anything to do with spending and resources it's not related to spending unless the spending is targeted with specific objectives in mind for example if we were to overhaul the math curriculum We were to put much more focus on uh, academic rigor. We were to focus on the things that work using the science of learning and apply that across the board and spend money concentrated on that. It would make a difference for student achievement in mathematics. What's the problem in education is we spread the funding out. We use a formula, algorithms to give everybody a certain share of the funding and spread it out over a variety of different programs. And it really doesn't have a whole lot of effect. Um, you've, you raised an interesting thing. What does matter? And I'm going to, this. some of your teachers in the audience are going to be interested in my comments on this. You know, we pay our teachers very well. Uh, PISA confirms that. Because in one area, we, we are among the leaders in the world. And that is the amount of the annual salaries of our teachers in relation to those in other countries. Now, we we do expect a lot of our teachers, but I think we need to we need to lean on them here and say, look, um, there there's a there's an issue here. There's a gap, a growing gap between the amount of resources we're putting into education and the results in terms of student capabilities and achievements. Now, having said that, I you may know I released a massive report a week ago. It was called uh, Pandemic Fallout. And it, it basically said that we were suffering from data starvation. We suspended all our testing. We didn't collect any, um, any research. We didn't really target the resources that we had. Our, our recovery plans were poorly thought out. And in other words, it predicted all of this. So I'm feeling vindicated today because the PISA results um, absolutely underline and reinforce all of the conclusions in my report. But you talk about we should be leaning on teachers, and I don't want to be unfair to teachers. I mean, there are some fantastic teachers out there, but we just last week, I think it was, had a court ruling where the teachers' unions were fighting the province when they said teachers should have to be able to fill out or pass a mandatory math test. Just if you're going to teach, you should be required to show that you're qualified to teach. This is something the teachers' unions were fighting against. So how do you lean on the teachers in even in the nicest way when their unions are saying even what sounds like the most basic requirement to teach something is unfair. I believe the teachers unions have to give that one up. They've lost that battle. Uh, They've lost it in the courts and they're losing it in the court of public opinion. People do expect their kids to master mathematics. And if the, the teachers lack the preparation to do that, it needs to be confronted. Now, maybe the test isn't the right way. Maybe that's not the correct, but to, to deny that there's a problem and, and um, throw out the one solution that's been proposed. I think there's a bigger issue too with respect to the methodologies and there needs to be a wholesale uh, change in the focus on applying wherever we can the science of learning and teach um, what the way that the research is indicating, what works in uh, improving student performance. We need to focus on that. There are a lot of things, there's a lot of other issues that we're debating and arguing about that really don't have a whole lot to do with improving student performance. Okay, so why COVID, We get I get COVID and I think everyone else does too, that that was certainly an issue that we have to respond to somehow it was a problem though but as you've pointed out this is not just a covid thing this is a steady decline why what what are we not doing or what are students not doing or what are teachers not doing what's the system not doing what is leading to these numbers continually going down school culture uh there's a serious issue there uh is there a performance ethic uh, why are students coming to school looking to be, um, if you want, uh, entertained? <laughs> why are they so uh, inclined, you know, to resist 
efforts to focus. Uh, there's a big problem with social media in, intrusions, a lack of concentration, teachers frustrated because they can't get students' attention. There's bigger problems that speak to, that contribute to the, uh, the steady decline in student performance. And you know what doesn't help is uh, student attainment levels, student graduation levels, reaching record amounts, record heights, while declines in actual performance are visible to everyone. I, I think this, the credibility of the system really is at stake here. And that's what the value of the PISA results are. It shows you not so much each of the individual reports, it's the pattern over time is relevant if our students are performing less well over time, we need to be changing things inside the system to turn that around. We can't excuse it. We can't explain it away. You mentioned distractions. Uh, one of the PISA questions that was in this, one of the parts of the report was um, the distraction from digital devices in mathematics lessons. 30% of students across all the countries that were polled were distracted by having cell phones, smartphones in class. I'm quite honestly surprised this is still a debate or a controversial discussion that's being had. It seems to me, I know, for example, if I was in class today and I had my smartphone, I would be distracted every single minute of every single day. It would be impossible for me. I, I'm I'm shocked this is not more clear cut at this point to say, get rid of them. Oh, well, you've got to keep in mind who it is. It's students self-reporting that they are acknowledging that the use of cell phones is distracting. Yeah, I That's, bet if you ask the teachers, I bet if you ask the teachers, oh, they'd say 80%. Oh, no, it, the teachers are overwhelmingly of the opinion that cell phones need to be controlled, if not completely eliminated. There's an emerging consensus, not only in Canada, province to province, but worldwide. There's many uh, at Quebec. That is going to be the policy in the coming months, is there are, will be no cell phones in in uh, class and in, and in many schools in Quebec. That's the first of our provinces. But if you look at the U.S., uh, it's spreading. Uh, it's in France, the Netherlands, uh, most of uh, the U.K. Um, there is no question there's a movement afoot to control and limit the use of cell phones. Now, why? Because the research is conclusive now that those who argued they were useful and they had an educational purpose, they've they've also been exposed because the latest result of, of uh, Common Sense Media, uh, Jean Twenge from San Diego State University. The we've had her on, yeah, we've had her on the show several yeah, times. She, yep. she has nailed it. If only 1.7% of the time they're using those devices, it's for educational purposes, then why, who's defending this? Uh, they're basically romantics who think that kids, um, that noise is good and that kids playing around with their, um, their devices, they might actually stumble on something of, of value. That's the kind of people that are left supporting it in the teaching community. Uh, we have only one minute left here. And so it's an unfair way to ask you uh, to wrap this up with this question. But with all that has just been discussed, I presume that when they do these PISA reports, the hope is that this leads to discussions that lead to solutions. Is there a solution? Because there hasn't been for 20 years now. The numbers have been declining. Is there a solution that can be brought in that would fix some of this stuff? Yes, but it's going to take a concerted effort, and uh, we have to put an end to denialism. And that's how I would describe the report in the uh, press release of our um, our educational authority today. Believe it or not, our educational authority said Canadian students are among the top performers globally in mathematics. Now, if that isn't denialism, then and you know who they are? They represent all the ministers of education in this in this country. That's the Council of Ministers of Education. That's what they put out today. So um, there's a lot of work to be done, and it begins by convincing those in authority, the ministers of education and the deputy ministers of education, to stop putting out statements like that that are essentially ludicrous, given the situation we're facing and trying to improve the state of education after a global pandemic. 
Okay, but if they're saying that, and we got to run, but if they're saying that, that says to me, um, you know, they always say, and forgive the bad analogy, but if you're an addict, you can't be helped until you admit you're an addict. If you have a problem, you can't be helped until you admit you have a problem. They're not admitting they have a problem, so nothing's going to be done. Or they've just turned over writing media releases to chat GPT, and they got the uh, data wrong and took the 2003 data and assumed it was 2022. There's no other explanation for the kind of thing they put out today, which is embarrassing to the education ministers across the province. When they look at that, they're going to be shaking their heads, wondering what's going on uh, in the educational authority that's supposed to report to the ministers of education. That is Paul Bennett. He is the director of Schoolhouse Consulting and the Schoolhouse Institute. Uh, he is Canada's leader in educational analysis and expertise. I always appreciate you coming on and doing this. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The changes announced today is that Orlando Steinauer is no longer head coach of the Ticats. We don't know who that's going to be yet, although uh, Steve Milton at The Spectator says if it's not Scott Milanovic, uh, as he writes, if it's not Scott Milanovic, look up and you'll see a solar eclipse on Wednesday because it's... uh, it's that unusual. So in all likelihood, Scott Milanovic, uh, Ed Hervey takes over as general manager. Orlando Steinauer becomes the president of football operations. So what does all this mean? Is this now the organizational chart that will finally lead the Hamilton Tiger Cats to their first Grey Cup this millennium? Josh Smith is a reporter for Three Down Nation, joins us now. Josh, how are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing? I am doing well. Well, let's start with that question because that's what everyone wants to know, I think, first of, all, first of all. Do you believe that this change is the mag- magical elixir that puts everything right and the Hamilton Ticats are your 2024 Grey Cup champions? Man, put me on the spot uh, <laughs> just a few weeks after the 2023 Grey Cup came to a conclusion. Uh, I won't go that far. I won't go that far and say this is what will make them Grey Cup champions, but I don't think that this is a bad move by any stretch of the imagination. I was calling for a sort of organizational restructuring. This team had operated with Steinauer was the president of football operations and they had a I think it was Spencer Zimmerman, Ed Hervey, and Drew Alamang were all like this co-general manager triumvirate that they had. And then Steinauer was the head coach. And it just felt weird where your boss's boss is not your – it was just – I don't know. I I wish for a more – you have a guy on the top. You have a general manager. You have a head coach. And it looks like that's what we're going to get here. I'll echo what Steve Milton said. I, too, would be – flabbergasted if it's not Scott Milanovic that is named head coach of this team later this week. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, Milanovic comes with a good pedigree. He's, he's won three great cups. One as a head coach down the QEW in Toronto about 10 years ago. So uh, it can't be any worse than what we've seen in the last couple of years where this team seemed kind of stuck in the mud. You know, let's just do the Scott Milanovic thing first before we get back to everything else that's going to happen here, because there's an interesting side note on this. Scott Milanovic interviewed for the uh, Saskatchewan Rough Riders head coaching position that was just awarded to Corey Mace, the Tyke, the uh, Argos defensive coordinator. That was very recent. Now, he, he pulled out of that, but he did start the process. Does that tell us that this decision by the Ticats has been very recent rather than something that's been thought about for some time? So there was some rumblings at the Grey Cup. As you know, everyone here, media, teams, everyone was here in Hamilton three or four weeks ago for the Grey Cup. And there was some rumblings that there could be a change here. And I think... Milanovic interviewed with the riders knowing maybe in his back pocket that he had the tie catch job already as if it was sort of a, I'm going to go here. You're going to, because if you go back and listen to Orlando Steiner, he says, we don't hold anyone back. Milanovic was the OC. So we interviewed for that job. And I think it was more of a, let me see what's there and what they're offering for himself. Maybe knowing that he could come back here and, and get this gig. It's it, it might be far fetched to, believe that but that's sort of the because okay. even again before Corey Mace or anything with that was was involved with the riders choice this was kind of a rumor floating around that there could be a restructuring in Hamilton and the only thing that really made sense if Steinhardt was going to leave the bench was to elevate Milanovic 
Yeah, unless there was some, well, there was another name, and you guys on Three Down Nation may have been the ones who put it out there, but there was, the name June Jones had floated yep. around for, with a return. Uh, I, I, uh, that one always, I mean, it was intriguing. That's an intriguing storyline for June Jones to come back. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, this one, this one makes a lot more sense. Let's put it that way. June Jones, the offensive coordinator, I'm all here for. His offense was spectacular. June Jones, the head coach, that's not exactly something I'd want to sign up for in 2023. <laughs> there were a lot of questionable decisions he made both on and off the field during his previous tenure with the Tiger Cats. Uh, I don't want to get into the whole messy Art Bryles situation, but that left a kind of a stain on the team. That was a lot of his doing because he was friendly with Bryles through their times yep. in the college football ranks. And then, of course there were some on-field things that he made some mistakes on. There was some staffing. He brought Jerry Glanville in and that defense struggled late in the season. So Johnny Manziel. Who can forget (laughs) the Johnny Manziel circus that came to town that spring. And then the trade that sent him out of here. And just, it was, uh, it was fun at the time to kind of cover it, but I got to think it was pretty chaotic from the inside. This feels like a much more stable, Milanovic has been a head coach before Steinhauer is there. Ed Hervey has been a successful general manager, helped build Edmonton, a great cup champion there in 2015. So this feels much less chaotic than it would have if, if June Jones was brought back into the mix. As I, when, when I first heard this news today, I had to, I couldn't even remember them all. I had to go back and look it up to find out who had been Ticat head coaches since Bob Young took over, which will be uh, after the 20, uh, 2003 season. So it'll be coming up. This is his 20th, I guess. Greg Marshall, Ron Lancaster, Charlie Taft, Marcel Belfay, George Cortez, Kent Austin, June Jones, Orlando Steinauer, and now presumably Scott Milanovic. That's nine head coaches in two decades. And then I started going through who have been the general managers or director of player personnel, and I've lost track. There's just, it's, it's almost impossible to keep up. This is a franchise that has consistently been trying to find whatever it is that will get it to work, and it hasn't been able to find it. And as a result, there's been change after change after change after change. Why should we believe this change? Because those are good football men. The names that I mentioned, these are not idiots. These are good football guys. Why is this one now going to work? I got to be honest with you. I don't know if it is. I I don't want to put my... I don't want to stake anything on because I've been fooled before. When Ken Austin came in, I thought, you know what? This guy's going to lead this team to a championship. And Agreed. they were close. Agreed. And they've been close a lot over the last 10 years, but he didn't do it. When they hire Orlando Steinhauer, everybody was like, no. Because when he was defensive coordinator here and when he was, but even before he got here and he was a coach in Toronto, it was like, he's a head coach in waiting. I thought he was going to lead him to a championship. It didn't happen. Like, there's just... I, I don't want to say there's a curse on the team because that's not fair, but there just seems to be whenever this team kind of hits a peak. And with Austin, the first two years, great cup appearances. Steinhauer, first year, 15-3. and three, They're running roughshod over everybody. They just find a way to sink back to that 9-9, nine and nine, 500, in and out type of thing. Like, this team has been successful without the championship. They've no team other than the Calgary Stampeders have been to the playoffs more in the last 15 years than the Tiger Cats. But the difference is the Stampeders have won championships and Tiger Cats have not. In fact, every team other than, I think, I know every team in the CFL yes. other than the Tiger Cats has even won Ottawa. since, since 2010. Even like, Ottawa. Even, like, and they, yeah, came, like, they only came in in 2014 and they've already got one. Exactly. So it's, they're trying to find, and I applaud the team for never standing pat, to be honest with you, because a lot of teams could just decide, hey, you know, we make the playoffs every year. Maybe one year it'll break our way. They are constantly trying to improve. And I do wonder, kind of similar to how Arnaldo Steinhauer got the job, like June Jones, if you recall, stepped down as head coach to give Steinhauer the position. And then he was going to stay on as offensive coordinator. And that would have been kind of weird. So then he left to take a head coaching and general manager job in the XFL. That would, I think that was the second version of the XFL, not the third one that now obviously doesn't <laughs> exist either. And this is kind of feels something similar. I was a little surprised though, when Steinhauer stepped, he's only 50 years old. Like he's a, he's a good coach. I think he still wants to coach. Like it wouldn't be a surprise to me if this was a move to get him, if he's in a couple of years time, gets that itch to coach again, and then is maybe coaching somewhere else. But for the time being, I think it's a, it's an interesting and I think workable power dynamic because I think, 
you have Milanovic, you have Steinhauer, you have Ed Hurley. Those are, like you said, smart and good football men. They can get this turned around. I guess we'll just we'll have to wait and see what they do. The only bone that I'll pick with something you've said, and, and I agree with almost everything, but the only thing when you said this team has largely been successful, if you go back to when Bob Young took over, so the first year when Greg Marshall was coached, they were 9-8-1. and one. After that, 5-13, and 4-14, and 3-15, and 3-15, and 9 9 9 8-10, 6-12, 10-8, 9-9, 10-8, 7-11, 6-12, 8-10, 15-3, that one year with Steinauer, 8-6, 8-10. This has been the definition of mediocrity at best, save for that one year. And yes, they have made the playoffs a lot, but they've also been in an Eastern Conference that very often stinks. You almost by default get in in the Eastern Conference many years. Uh, th- this this franchise has not, they've never been able to build something that is, except for that one year, where you look and you say, every week I expect them to go out and crush everybody. That's never happened. No, and that that that's fair. I, what, what I'm defining by success is they are a playoff team, and, and you mentioned that run there when Bob Young first took over. Like I do think in a lot of ways that four-year span of five wins, three wins, four wins has kind of... That's really polluted the minds of of Ticats fans because they they remember what it's like to be that bad and you don't want to go back to being that. Like look at the Edmonton Elks right now or yes. or the Ottawa Redblacks. The Ottawa Redblacks have won like ten games, twelve games the last four years. Like they've been awful. The problem with the Ticats is they've been good. They haven't been great. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, they, you're right. They make the playoffs. They've made four Grey Cups. They just can't get over that hump. I mean, most teams would take four Grey Cup appearances in a 10-year span because you'd think you'd win at least one of them. But unfortunately, the Ticats are the CFL's equivalent of the Buffalo Bills, and it's just <laughs> never, never happened. Yeah, and, and we will see. Like, I, there is a part of me that is... So I, I'm, I question whether Orlando Steinauer's strength is in the player personnel or in coaching, because I do think he's a good coach. And we will see. We're going to see. I mean, that's now that he has only one responsibility... He's not going to be distracted. He's not going to be spread thin. We will see. Maybe he's a great player personnel guy. We will see. Uh, and and I think that Scott Milanovic is a good coach. So that should work. I mean, there are parts of this where you look and you say, you know, th- this could be the thing that brings it all together. I just, like you, I've been down this path too many times now to say, oh, this is the one. Absolutely, this is the one. We we've I don't know how many times we've thought that, all of us. And clearly that has never come. So I, I'm, I'm going to now be the, uh, you know, the show me state. I'm going to wait and see when you, you, when you do it, I'll say, great, you did it until then. I'm, I, it's going to take some convincing. I have planted my flag too many times saying, this is the organist. This is the regime that's going to get it done. Fool me once. Shame on me. Fool me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not going to let it happen again. I, I like what they've done. I, Maybe don't because with you, I think I think Steinhauer's a very good coach. I, I think people have soured on him with with what's happened in the past couple of seasons. But I do think he's a good coach. I do question whether he's a good personnel guy. We're like you said, we're going to find that out. But the parts are here. Like you look at those parts, and it's it's a good core. It's if I was to build a football team, yeah, maybe there's better people out there. But I'd be pretty happy if my my three headed monster in football ops and on the coaching staff was Orlando Steinhauer, Ed Hervey, and Scott Milanovic. That's a championship. Steinhauer's won championships as a coach and a player. Ed Hervey won championships as a coach and a, or a general manager and a player. Scott Milanovic has won as an offense coordinator and a head. There's championship experience here. So I would want these guys running my team. But like you, they have to actually show it. I'm not going to sit here and say, yep, here we go. They're going to win 14 games next year. They're going to rule the East. They're going to win the Cup. Been burned too many times saying that. So wait and see. Same wait and see. All right. Uh, before we go here, very quickly. So uh, on the one hand, we're not hosting the Grey Cup in Hamilton next year. That was that's a pressure point. You want to have a good team. Didn't work out this year, but you don't maybe have the same pressure on you immediately that you want to have that Grey Cup team. Maybe you can do a rebuild and say, ah, next year is going to be building towards something. On the other hand. You have an aging team in some corners, and you do have Bo Levi Mitchell still under contract with a limited window. Is this a team that is going to be gunning for everything next year, or is this a team, do you believe, that now with this new leadership is going to, or new revised leadership, is going to be saying, let's build towards greatness? That is an exceptionally difficult question to answer because they have so many pending free agents. Before Stavros Katzentonis signed this week, they had 37 guys that could leave. 
a lot of them starters, a lot of them veterans. They do have the opportunity, if they wanted to, to rebuild this roster with some youth, maybe take a step back. Bo is still signed for two more years, but they can get out of that contract, I'm presuming, fairly easily. There, It's a question that needs to be asked. There, there could be a step back in 2024 with this, but you bring in a guy like Scott Milanovic, and I don't necessarily think he's a guy who's going to say, I'll sign up for a 10-year, you know, like – He's going to be here for as long as he wants to be, but I don't think he's your next head coach for the next decade. I think he's here for a very short time, but we saw in Toronto that he can build a team quickly. He took a, a bad Argos team, turned him into a great cup champion his first year there. So perhaps there, there are some middle ground this team's going to strike where the East is winnable. We saw Montreal go on a that's right incredible run. And so why and can't Ticat do that next year if they get the right mix of players? And Josh, they were a mess in the offseason last year. Absolutely. Montreal was supposed to be a complete and utter disaster. So we'll see. Maybe, maybe it is uh, December the 5th that we look back on and Josh, you and I, in this time next year, will say, see, back then we knew this was what was going to make it right. Um, and and if, if they do win, we'll both say that, but even though it's not really true. <laughs> Josh Smith, reporter, exactly, exactly. reporter for 3Down Nation. You can find that on 3downnation.com or .ca? Dot .com. 3downnation.com. I'll find him there. Josh, thanks for doing this. Thanks as always for having me on, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.